America. My name is I'm Yosef Frimpong. I come to you live every Thursday. I was out last week with the family, went to a family vacation. Every year we go to Blue Lake Music Camp. This is our second year in a row. And it's a camp where my kids, one of them, my seven-year-old plays violin and my nine-year-old plays cello. They're, I teach them, so as you can imagine, they're pretty good. I didn't play cello or violin myself, but I played the oboe as a younger man and a pretty decent musician. And so it's a Suzuki family music camp. So the whole family goes up and plays. And then, you know, it's me for a week among the whites. And what does that mean? I'll tell you that what it means is that you have to understand that this is a generational and institutional game, right? So this family camp is in Michigan and you know, you got people playing violin and cello and viola and bass and it's all in the Suzuki method and the Suzuki method is already kind of parent intensive um, because the understanding is that the parent works with the teacher who works with the parent who works with the student and all three of them, it's supposed to be like a golden triangle to make a successful student. And the system works, right? So my kids can play very well, but you have to understand that the other parents doing this, the other parents who are the primary practice parent, it's, it's a lot of white women. It's a lot of white moms who are the primary practice parent and while the dad's off being an engineer and somehow an owner, right? Me, I'm, I am the primary practice um, parent because I, I, I'm the musician, right? So, you just have to understand that, first of all, any other child who's going to somehow have an audition against my child is going to lose because my child has gone to this camp, right? My child has, you know, at seven years old, if you meet my child at 14, she'll think she does it naturally. But really, it's because, like, I've invested an incredible amount of time and effort and resources into her quality of musicianship. She's going to have a lot of confidence, and she will just trounce your kid because uh, she's going to be a, a generational player. It's not even going to be fair if your kid doesn't have the same advantages and institutional security as my kid, right? It's not even going to be fair, right? So you'll think, well, my kid just works hard. They'll be able to beat IME's kid when they're both 14. No, your kid can work as hard as you want to, but your, for your kid to be able to beat my kid, your kid would have had to have gone to this camp when your kid was seven, right? So it's a long game, right? So we're seeing this even in the NBA where there are a lot of generational players, if you take out the NBA players who didn't have a, a dad who just at least played college ball, you would take out right now a lot of NBA players. And college ball is like not negligible, right? So, and then we're only going to see that even more in the next generation of NBA players. Pretty much, I bet you the next generation of NBA players, at least half of them will have parents who played college ball, right? Because that's what it's going to take to compete at that level. And so you have to think about in generational. So you can think about this in terms of longitudinal and, and um, synchronetic or di diachronetic, however you want to think about it. You want to think of horizontal and, and vertical, horizontal being generational and uh, um, uh, vertical being generational and horizontal being institutional. That's, that's how all of these professions and all of these resources and all of these ways of life are getting doled out. They're doled out through generations and through institutions. So if you have like this 
understanding that you will do it as an abstract individual without any mooring in a generational, without any access to generational cultural um, affects or institutional horizontal um, supports and resources and training, then you're not in the game. You think you're in the game, but you're not in the game. You can't swim. Um, you know, Yvette and Tone, uh, Tone are really good about pointing this out. Like, lineage matters, right? And you can say, well, you know, first-generation immigrants do it all the time. Well, you have to actually think about who the first-generation immigrants are that you're talking about. Because a lot of the first-generation immigrants you meet who are doing it have parents and grandparents who've been treating native poor people and whatever country they're coming from badly for, you know, a few generations, right? So they're used, they have the generational knowledge on how to treat other people like trash. And then they come to America and they realize, oh, okay, the people we treat like trash in America are black. So they just start treating, they are very, they're very comfortable swimming in, a, in an anti-black, um, once they get the language of like, all right, so who are we, uh, who are we supposed to treat like trash? Those guys, okay, then they, then they, they're comfortable treating, um, uh, black people like trash because they come from people who for generations have treated other people in their country like trash, right? So <clears throat> you have to understand that the immigrants we meet in the United States are used to treating a subordinate class like disposable, as if they were disposable, right? So we, we take all of the biggest jokes across the globe and bring them to the United States and then are surprised when they survive and thrive in the United States treating black people poorly when that's how they survived in their home country, except their home country wasn't black. It was other, you know, people of their similar ethnicity, except of a lower class, right? Here we've racialized class. So that's, uh, makes it simple. <laughs> Can't be surprised when like, you know, Brahmins or whatever from the higher caste Indians, like, uh, uh, East Indian, uh, Southeast Asians come to the United States and, and treat black people like garbage because, you know, for thousands of years they've been taught to treat other people like garbage or lesser than, right? So what does that mean um, that we need to understand this as a generational game and an institutional game? Well, if we're serious about actually self-determination and not being determined by institutional access or generations, we need to democratize kind of cultural access. And I'm talking about culture. I, I still resent. And one of the reasons I do this podcast is to talk about culture and the importance of culture because <clears throat> I feel like I was poorly enculturated. I mean, my parents tried hard, but they didn't know. I, and a lot of black people don't know. So, I, you know, I do a podcast with black people. They don't know. They don't know that other people are training their kids to rule over you. So at this camp, they're pretty much training. You got these moms who are all like stay-at-home moms. Some of them homeschool their kids. Some of them send their kids to private school. But they're all like stay-at-home moms who can, um, you know, practice with their child and manage their child. And, you know, the husband's some engineer or some other earner jerk who they put up with because um, the husband provides and the, and, the, and the wife, like, you know, intensely parents the kids. And the system kind of works insofar as they raise young girls who have the manners to attract a quality of jerk earner and or you know they have like job ads like like one will be like a suzuki teacher a lot of these parents are suzuki teachers uh, or like or violin teachers right but the idea that they can have a studio even if their studio is 15 or 20 people even if they have that full studio that's not paying for their real house that they have in their leafy suburb 
that that that's family money paying for that family is in either extended family or family is in their husband's money right so you got all, all these women who who are doing very well as suzuki teachers and being very proficient as suzuki teachers because they are married to like you know engineers and doctors and stuff like that so that's that's what you're running against except as black families we don't have that right like women are primary earners and and you know it's just for like a lot of reasons we don't have that and it's not particularly i don't think it's good but it's just what it is so we need to understand like how do we create that kind of family support with either both people both no single moms they're like one or two single moms and the single moms there like had like family money that they don't talk about so like there are no single moms there at this camp right so by by the time you get into this level um like single parenthood has already like knocked you out because you need to first of all if you, you need to practice with your kid every day and if you're a single parent and you see your kid on weekends or whatever or you don't see your kid on weekends you're not practicing with your kid every day which means you're not in the game with my kid who practices with me every day your kid is is, is already out of the game right so single parents are already behind already behind And um, nobody wants to be honest with that. So you just, I'm just telling you, be honest. single parents are already behind because nobody, um, nobody, yeah, nobody's practicing with them every day. They're not, they're not gonna win with me. They're, they're not gonna beat my kid, right? So they're out of the game. So we need to figure out some way to support if we want children of single parents to be still in the game and not punish the um, child for being of a single parent, support them at a level that would be comparable to the support I give to my child. And that's going to be a hard thing to do. We could talk about, I'm an, a huge fan of child stipends. Like you just give everyone 800 bucks a month per kid. Give everyone 800 bucks per month per kid. And that, cause that's how much it costs to actually functionally raise like a kid who wins right between all the lessons and getting places people from point a to point b and everything so um so i just give every parent 800 but kind of like the child uh tax credit the ctc except actually just make it permanent and not just a tax credit just give everyone 800 bucks per kid and you'll have better kids people don't want to do that because what will happen they're like well you know some parents might actually um, you know, not be desperate in raising their kids. But the problem is you can't live in a nation that has functional kids with non-functional parents. So you need to actually, if you, you can't abstract or divorce kids from their parents. So if you want to help kids but not help their parents, that's just not the way the family works. There's an immediate connection between the two. So you have to admit that like if we're serious about helping kids, we have to be serious about helping parents, even the parents we don't like. All right, so we give them 800 bucks per kid um and for their at their discretion so that they can be good parents so that they can join the aau league and be a coach on that league right so um so that they can all the discretionary activities because you need your kid needs to be great at something because if they're not great at something they'll just be kind of a wastrel at everything i don't know if anybody's told you that but that's just kind of the truth your kid needs to be great at something so it doesn't need to be cello violin music my kids are going to be i'm going to go hard with them in music till they hit like 13, 14, and then like also be seeding soccer and a little bit of tennis, right? So my kids are gonna be, for the rest of their life, are going to know, be able to sit in any sort of musical setting and be able to play 
well. And they'll also be able to hit tennis balls with anyone and also be able to play in any pickup soccer game with anyone at any level. This is not to say that they're going to be professional tennis players or professional soccer players or professional musicians, but they're going to learn how to behave in those particular institutional settings. Because I, I appreciate each one of them, like, calls for a quality of focus and camaraderie that I think are good skills for kids to have in any way. So your kids don't have to do that, but they have to be excellent at something that will develop this kind of focus and that kind of, those kinds of skills, right? And that takes resources and money. So we need to give parents money so that they have the resources to develop their kids into being something, <laughs> as some excellent thing. And then, you know, what they want to transfer that excellence to is up to them. So at this camp, you got these moms who are um, training their kids, their daughters to marry well while also playing the violin, and their sons to be jerks while also playing the cello or the violin. Not really sons to be jerks, but they're not stopping them from being jerks with the understanding that, like, you'll play this now and then become a jerk, uh, you know, lawyer, engineer, doctor um, later on in life. And that's just kind of the ethic and i think that's that's a problem because i want to democratize these experiences which means we need to actually give parents a quality of discretionary income so that they can invest in these experiences either you know there's no reason like a camp like this couldn't be all black except we don't have the money for a camp like this <laughs> we don't have it we don't have it we don't have the money we don't have the parents who can get the time off work we don't have the time and we, we don't have we don't have the resources for it um, we don't have the resources for it. So we need to, if we're serious about democratizing power and cultural experiences and opportunities, we need to democratize cash, right? So give parents 800 bucks per month per child and then let the parents do what they do with the understanding that you get this money to, to provide culture for your child. Um, and that's how we'll end up winning. So you need generationally and institutionally so vertically and horizontal and without that you're not in um the, you're not in the game you think you're in the game but you're not really in the game and that's a that's a problem because a lot of people are lying to you about what the game is they'll say well if you just work hard as an individual or read a book or invest in crypto. Apparently, Jay-Z is starting a crypto um, investment program. That guy is a whole fool. Billionaire fool, but like he's not about the community. He's about himself. He's got a billion dollars, and he's still hustling and hustling you. He's not giving up the game. He's, like, he's, his, his, he's trying to make you a mark still. He's still that guy like selling CDs out of his, the hood of his car. He's still trying to like make a dollar off of you. Or what he'll do is he'll sell this crypto program to some tech libertarian and say, like, I'm going to teach the black kids in the hood about crypto. And the libertarian will give him, like, $5 million to do it. And then he'll go teach, you know, um, uh, they'll, they'll go teach, you know, start a neighborhood uh, crypto program that everybody well the libertarian and jay-z knows that isn't going to do anything for the black kids but like it'll fool the the the, the black people who look up to jay-z into thinking that it'll actually be good for them right so 
you're you're isolated if you don't have institutional access, and you're isolated if you don't have generational access, and everyone is lying to you. So, you know, that's why I do this podcast. By the way, if you support me, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com because people in school aren't going to teach like this. They're going to teach you, well, like, it's all up to you, and if you just work hard, you can do it. No, it depends on what the it is. But if you want to win, you need institutional access and um, generational access. And since we can't, you can't just make generational access, we need reparations or some sort of... Um, some sort of artificial like infusion of 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 cultural resources right and that's what that's one of the prongs of reparations um it's going to be cash money but it's also going to be institutional security and uh you know to make up for the generation of cultural degradation, uh, degradation and just lies, right? So like a lot of black parents who mean aren't well are just confused and they're confusing their kids. A lot of people, uh, you know, so many well-meaning black kids are confusing their kids about what it means to be black that it's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate and the kids end up confused or broken or downwardly mobile and, and confused about the fight and not helping the community. And it's just, uh, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. So I'm trying to clarify the fight and tell you that the game is not about abstracting individuals um, and telling the abstract individual that they can do well. It's about manufacturing the generational and institutional access. Institute, what someone asked, what's institutional security? Institutional security is not being, uh, being kicked out of school, fired from your job, or being able to being thrown in jail for like standing up for black people. Right? So right now we're not institutionally secure because at any point in time we could be divorced. We could be do and all this for doing the right thing. We could be divorced, fired, or jailed for doing the right thing. That means all these institutions through which you realize yourself are actually predicated on you being anti-black. Right? Standing up for black people could get you divorced could get you fired or could get you jailed. And that is the problem. And that means we don't have any institutional stability because we can't actually advocate for who we are without actually jeopardizing our membership in these very important institutions through which you realize who you are. All right? White people can advocate for white people and not lose their marriage, jobs, or risk the jail time. <laughs> they might, they'll actually thrive advocating for white people, all right? So black people, if we advocate for black people, we risk all of that, unless we do it under the quality, with the quality of, uh, of, of uh, circumspection that the whites will allow us to advocate for black people. Even Booker T. Washington ran into this. He was allowed to advocate for black people as long as they were non-threatening. <laughs> and then the whites paid him to advocate for black people as long as he promised that black people would always be non-threatening. So in the South, you have a lot of HBCU Negroes who are practiced at being non-threatening. They're also practiced at keeping black people poor and managed um, for white comfort. Right? Remember, HBCUs fired W.E.B. Du Bois. HBCU fired, HBCUs fired uh, Carter G. Woodson. Um, HBCUs fire mouthy Negroes as fast as anybody else. And that is a problem with um, just understanding what it means to live in a white supremacist system that will allow 
the semblance of black self-determination, you'll have an HBCU, but it'll always be an HBCU that's tied with the understanding that you'll never do anything or produce anybody that will actually challenge white power. Oh, Chris Wessling was fired from an HBCU too? Not surprised at all. These are three real ones. H uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Francis Cross Wessling, and, um, and uh, Carter G. Woodson. All three fired from HBCUs for actually like clarifying the problem. Yeah, I didn't know Cross Wessling was fired from Howard. Not surprised. For clarifying that what like the problem of what it means for black people in America. So you have to understand that the game is generational and the game is institutional and a lot of people are lying to you about it trying to tell you it's about abstract individuals and you have to understand that a lot of white people use their gender and um and the, the gender division of responsibility to obscure how they're manufacturing the privilege this is why women get off the hook and 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 guy and white guys get a lot of um fire but really it's the white family that's the problem that actually is Either it's an active problem or it's one that's completely indifferent. The white family structure is completely indifferent to securing racial justice, right? So it'll be like, well, no, we're a good white family, but we just happen to send our kid to a white, white school for the family, you know? Um, so if you don't have an anti-racist family, like John Brown, John Brown had an anti-racist family. If you don't have an anti-racist family, then your family structure is actually just reproducing all of the same systems that are very comfortable with a hierarchy that locks black people out as a matter of its own logic. The logic of the American hierarchy is to lock black people out and then confuse them about being locked out. So many people lie to black people. They lie to black children, they lie to black families, they lie to black women, they lie to black men. All different lies, but all lies. I mean, someone told my mom that divorce wouldn't affect the kids. Meanwhile, divorce totally affected my kids. I could have used my dad and my sister just kind of spun out, right? So, so many people lie, lie to black people at all levels of life, but about so many different things that we don't have kind of the generational culture and institutional stability to actually, um, you know, to win or to compete. Lies and gaslighting. Growing up is lies and gaslighting. Except on this show, I try to, I try to kind of clarify that. I try to clarify some of the lies or at least sell you that like all your favorite people are lying to you about what this means <laughs> and that you cannot live life as an exception and call that winning. You don't live, you're not winning until everyone around you is winning. So if you're living life as an exception, what you do is just living life as a stressful, like you, you're, just, you're just trying to keep your exceptional status. I do not want to be exceptional. I do not want my kids to have to be exceptional. Um, I, I, I want them to be excellent, surrounded by other excellence, and I want that excellence to be black, but uh, that means like the goal is lifting the sea. Right, so I want to democratize power throughout the community. Right, so thank you for your time. By the way, if you support what I'm doing, um, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademics.com. Probably come out with another video because I have another family thing. This is the two weeks I really dedicate to my family. I have another family thing this Thursday, so I'll probably do another show tomorrow. Um, Oh, yeah, someone said, honestly, there's not enough study on the nuclear white family as the foremost institution 
of white identity predicated on black degradation. That's true. The white family, like that's where it's all like generated. If you do any serious policy, uh, racial justice politics, but doesn't affect how white people think of their family or their family's not going to feel threatened, then you're not serious about any serious racial justice politics. Like any serious racial justice politic is going to make white people feel very uncomfortable about their family because their family has been organized to reproduce a quality of America that is not uh, consistent with sharing power with black communities. Right? It's consistent with actually um, reproducing a racial hierarchy. Right? So once again, the game is generational, vertical and institutional, horizontal. Right? Don't get that confused. And don't be confused with like first generation immigrants doing well because back in their home country, they were part of an awful class that was treating other people of their same ethnicity bad. And so they come here and they learn how to treat black people bad and it's just swimming in the same generational water they've been doing for generations. All right. And um, thank you for your time. Probably see you tomorrow talking about something slightly different. But we need the resources to, to secure our institutions so that they can be actively pro-black without, um, without you know, worrying about making some white donor nervous, which every HBCU is worried about making some white donor nervous. And so how are those, how real historically black are those historically black colleges? <laughs> when every HBCU at a level is worried about making some white donor class nervous, right? They're worried about making McKinsey Scott nervous or Melinda Gates nervous. And if, so you have HBCUs predicated on not making rich white women nervous. And that's been the, that's been the problem. Those are the people who fired WB Du Bois. So that's been the problem. That's been the problem for, you know, as long as there's been an America. Thank you for your time, and I will see you probably tomorrow talking about something slightly different. Peace.